Happy Black History Month, everybody. Song here, saying hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Effing Ethical. On this first episode recorded in the already eventful 2021, I'm joined by Greg Gonsalves, a lifelong activist, epidemiologist, and professor at the Yale School of Public Health, who's increasingly a personal hero of mine. In our conversation, we celebrate the inauguration, discuss what we hope to see in the new Biden era, and talk about something that's been on my, and I think fair to say just about everyone's minds, the vaccine and its equitable rollout. It was so interesting to learn about some of the striking parallels between the COVID-19 pandemic and the vaccine and the AIDS epidemic and the distribution of antiretrovirals in the 90s. Both, as you know, that can mean the difference between life and death. His inspiring story teaches us about activism and exemplifies the sometimes hard to acknowledge truth that a life of social impact has no magic map and that we get to chart our own course. Thanks for being here, and I hope you'll all enjoy and feel as spurred into action as I did by our conversation. Today, we had a, a fantastic guest on our show, um, Greg Gonsalves, who is a professor at the Yale School of Public Health an epidemiologist um, and the co-director of the Global Health Justice Partnership, as well as the co-director of the Collaboration for Research Integrity and Transparency, and an AIDS and global health activist. So welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for being on with us. We're so excited to chat with you. Happy to be here. So I just wanted to kind of start our conversation with your definition of activism. You've been an activist for so many years, and um, even though your job title isn't necessarily an activist now, I imagine that um, you consider yourself an activist in, in certain ways. So I'd love to hear your definition of activism. Well, so nobody's ever asked me that, so I just have to pause and think for a second. But, um, I mean, basically, it's about making change and more importantly, change in social, political, or economic realities for people. And so it's different than sort of making change in other ways, through scholarship, for instance, for people at universities, or by some um, technological innovation that somebody might do in Silicon Valley, for instance. Um, wow. It's different than legislating um, and yeah. making change the political, economic, and social realities through the law. Um, it's usually citizen-driven, or I think that's actually too restrictive because it can be undocumented immigrants, for instance, that, uh, yeah. advocating for recognition from a state like the United States or, or refugees, for instance. So I think it's people making claims on the state and doing it in a way that uh, is usually usually from the outside and making appeals to people in power to, to make make changes. I love that definition. Wow. I can't believe no one's ever asked you that because I couldn't have imagined a, a better answer. So, you know, you've encompassed a lot in that answer and I, you know, saw that you had a very kind of a chart your own path kind of education and career. Um, and, you know, I've also had somewhat of a off the beaten path kind of career. So, uh, you know, in college, I was a community organizer and then um, I worked in politics in Korea and then I became a lawyer because I felt like having that law degree was going to be the tool that helps me um, do the work that I want to do and, and support the community that I, I'm, I'm a part of. And, um, and then I realized that while as powerful as the law is, it's, it wasn't enough to have kind of sustainable change that's like resilient and 
And so I felt like I needed to learn and understand this, like these powers that be in this world of capitalism. And I didn't understand it. And so I came to business school to understand how to tap into kind of framework of capitalism to, to further my work. And so I'd love to hear what guided your decision to first leave school and then to go back to finish your undergrad degree and to get your PhD. So I think many people are under a lot of pressure, middle-class kids, right? Particularly kids. I mean, my, my grandparents came over from Italy and from Portugal. Um, my grandfather was a janitor and my other grandfather on my mother's side was a baker and, you know, res restaurant owner um, when they came to the United States. Um, and there's enormous pressure to, to sort of succeed uh, and go to school, get a profession that made sense which usually meant being a doctor or a lawyer um, in the way I grew up. And what my parents offered me growing up was the ability to sort of try things that I was interested in, whether it was like learning a, a musical instrument or going to see a play or all these different things. Um, and I think, you know, inadvertently, they gave me a sense of that, that there were many more possibilities out there in the world than they might have had. And so when I got to college, you know, I thought, oh, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll be a pre-med student and become a physician and, you know, just follow this path that sort of I assumed I would follow from my teenage years. But I discovered many new things when I got to college. You know, I discovered literature, which I turned out to really enjoy and started studying Russian language and literature, for instance, but also realized I was gay. Um, and this in the 80s during the Reagan administration and, the, you know, at the start of the AIDS epidemic and realized that, oh, like my whole sort of view of my own social reality was changing. I wasn't sort of a suburban straight white guy from the suburbs of New York. I was in a really detested minority because I was gay. And it started giving me an appreciation for the sort of role of social exclusion in American society, which we've seen all too well sort of flourish in, in the years since Reagan. Um, and things were starting not to make sense to me, right? It was not clear that going from point A to point B to going from college to medical school to residency was a path that was useful to me or made sense to me. And I ended up dropping out of school because I was frankly super confused and didn't know what I wanted to do and felt like by that time I was moving towards a career in, in literature and, and academic study of literature. And I was like, this doesn't even make sense. It seems so sort of remote from the world around me, um, which was happening in the 1990s, whether it was assaults on reproductive rights of women by the religious right in the United States or the exploding AIDS epidemic, all these things were happening. And, you know, so I was bumming around Boston waiting tables and, you know, ended up meeting somebody who's HIV positive and the AIDS epidemic came straight mm. to my world. Um, back then there was no Google, there was no internet. So like if you wanted to find information, you had to go search for it and you could sneak into a medical library or you could sort of look around and I found a group called ACT UP. AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power um, in Boston, which was basically a lot of uh, gay men, lesbians, and others who were looking for information and to save their own lives with the lives of their lovers, their friends, their family members, um, and got involved with the AIDS, the AIDS epidemic, sort of as a, a hobby in the evenings to get information from my partner then. And, um, but it became more and more sort of clear that this was sort of a, a social movement that was really trying to do what we've just been talking about create social change and save people's lives. And it 
it became increasingly important in my life. And I moved to New York and I was working in a lab. I was going back to my old science roots, but, you know, spending most of my time at ACT UP meeting mm. during the evenings. And then slowly, slowly, but surely started moving into sort of more of my life was focused on the activism work than it was on doing my work in the lab. Mm. And I had an opportunity to do the work as a paid person with the treatment action group, which my friends and I had started um, in the early 1990s, which is the subject of a movie called How to Survive a Plague. Um, mm. And did that work for a long time. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, after antiretroviral therapy emerged in the United States, um, which was basically turned HIV into chronic management illness, realized that that was not the case for what was going on all around the world. And now a friend of mine showed up in New York from South Africa saying, we want you guys to come down to South Africa to work with our group, the Treatment Action Campaign, and talk to us about how you learned the science, how you'd learn to sort of advocate for treatment with your government, and spend many, a bunch of the early 2000s thinking about access to antiretroviral therapy around the world, from South mm -hmm. America to Africa to the Caribbean to, to Asia, the former Soviet Union. And I lived, then I moved to South Africa in 2006 and um, do this work regionally. And after a couple of years, I just happened to be looking around to see like, okay, what's next for me? And I had no plans to leave South Africa or to stop doing the work. But I thought, you know, there's always this nagging idea of unfinished business yeah. that I didn't finish my education. My parents are teachers, so education was important to them. And I saw this program at Yale and I said, oh, okay, let me apply. It seems like they take a few people a year, so it's not going to happen. And if and also, like they can't fully fund me. I can't go anyway. So so I just did it on a lark. And they wrote back saying, "We want you to come for an interview." And I remember over the Thanksgiving break in two thousand and eight, I came to the Yale campus. Nobody was around, pretty much like now, and interviewed. And it was clear that they were going to let me in. And so I came back to get a bachelor's degree in my late 40s thought it was going to be like a little bit of a hobby like you know it'll be like a fun sabbatical Amazing. from like but you know coming to Yale as an undergraduate with all these sort of you know rabid teenage pragmatists who were <laughs> when I was 18 um, meant that I had to throw myself into it so I threw myself into it and I ended up back in the science track in evolutionary biology here and was about to go do a PhD in Europe when Albert Coe, who's mm. had just arrived from Cornell, who was the chair of the department I'm now in, met me at a lecture and said, why are you going to Europe to do a lab-based PhD program? You should stay here. And, you know, what about the, all the activism you did? And ended mm. up talking to two of my friends here at Yale, Amy Kopchinski and Allie Miller, who were just being courted by the law school, and said, oh, this guy, Albert Coe, said, what about doing something that mixes public health science and activism? And they were their eyes wow. up and we decided to form this thing called the Global Health Justice Partnership. We appealed to their dean, Robert Post, and the dean of the public health school at the time, Paul Cleary, and said we wanted to um, start this. And, you know, if you are interested, you know, all of us will be here at Yale to make it happen. And so we did and ended up staying behind to do this, finished my PhD, and then came on the faculty here. That's beautiful. Wow. Is this where you imagined yourself, you know, 10 yeah, years ago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Not at all. I mean, my path was probably going to be from different kinds of NGOs in the global health space yeah. um, over time. Many of my friends are still in that space and do that, do that similar work. Um, yeah. I did not think of myself as an academic. 
at all. Hmm. Do you find yourself surprised in any way that even though this isn't where you expect it to end up, um, that you're able to to make the impact that you want to in this sort of unexpected setting? It's different. I mean, this is a very conservative institution. A friend of yeah. mine, when I first um, started here, said, you know, it's had 300 years to get stuck in its ways. And so yeah. it's really, you know, for all the sort of progressive liberal classes yeah. or professors, it's very corporate state institution. And so like, um, you know, I was chaining myself and getting arrested to people in my old life. And it's just like the different environment. It's not, there are people here who, who will do that. And there's students here yeah. interested in doing it too, as part of their own activism, but it's different being in a university perch trying to do activism than it is to be in a, a social movement or a, a NGO doing that work. But then again, Yale can be leveraged to do good things and bad things. And if, if I'm here, I mean, I, I think the reason many of my friends are here are because we can leverage the institution to do good. And Absolutely. it's a platform to both discover new things and do scholarship and research, but also to sort of use an institution that has a lot of power in the world to affect change. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to switch gears a little bit. And, you know, you mentioned coming to age and the Reagan era and kind of the awful atmosphere it was then. And as much as things have changed since then, I feel like, especially in the past four years, it it kind of felt like nothing's changed. And so I just wanted to sort of reflect for a moment on yesterday's beautiful inauguration day. And I think the standout for me, and I think for a lot of folks, what and, and what sort of summed up this moment was Amanda Gorman's stunning message of hope and vision and solidarity and, you know, healing and, and building a better future together. And um, I felt so relieved and, and joyful yesterday. And I wanted to celebrate the moment where, you know, the least of which, right, like, you know, what, what does it mean to have a woman vice president, the first black vice president, the first Asian vice president? And it, I wanted to take yesterday to just like sort of celebrate, but I think I share in sort of the common sentiment that like, well, okay, great, we've celebrated, um, nothing's changed, like the work is still, it's just like, it's just beginning, right? And, but it, but it feels like there's at least now mental space to sort of be, continue to be proactive rather than reactive to work toward, you know, dismantling white supremacist systems and, you know, undo and heal some of the harms um, of the past four years and of, you know, of decades and, and you know, hundreds of years. So I, some of the things that came to mind for me were, you know, not just like stopping the horrifying practices of family separation at the border, but, you know, what does it mean to have like comprehensive immigration reform? Like, let's think about that again, you know, or not just pausing evictions for a few months during COVID, but like, how can we make solutions to the housing crisis, whatever it is. And um, I've just been kind of thinking about a, a lot of that. And I was wondering, a, your reactions or reflections um, about this new political era, and B, in parallel to the pandemic response, because I feel like the pandemic response covers everything and it touches everything. What are some issues that you would like to see prioritized in the coming years? So a couple of things. I found myself tearing up at different points yesterday about the relief of the Trump era being over. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's funny because on election night in 1992, a bunch of AIDS activists were in a hotel room in D.C. because we'd just been to an AIDS research meeting and we were watching the returns and Bill Clinton wins the election, mm-hmm. comes out, and we're all, you know, we're all crying um, and, you know, just so happy that the Reagan era is over. Three months later, we're fighting with the Clinton administration about 
don't ask, don't tell, or the aid budget, or whatever. So no illusions that the Biden administration is going to do everything right. Right. And as you said, there's now a chance to sort of at least not deal with sort of the incompetence and the sort of sheer cruelty of what we've seen over the past four years. I think the politics in America, at least in the Democratic Party, have changed a bit. The whole immigration reform package that came out in the context of executive orders and what they want to do seems much bolder than anything we've seen thus far, for instance. That alone would be a, a, sort of a stupendous achievement. Um, yeah. First, we have to deal with the pandemic, but we can't. We have to be able to do more than a few things at once, right? So immigration reform is desperately important. You know, dealing with racial inequity is important, but also economic inequality, which has driven yeah. so much of sort of the pain and suffering in the United States. I work on opioids and substance use. Mm. Um, that we need to address that as well. So there's a lot of stuff. There's a, you know, there's a whole stack of things that need to be done by the administration. We only have two years to sort of push before we might lose the House and or the Senate, right? You know, so my sense is that we need to seize the moment. So like, there's a lot of stuff that four years ago, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, we would have been pushing for. We have a slightly more progressive Democratic Party. Yes, it's beholden to still sort of centrist politics, but we have two years now that we can push as hard as we can for the things that we care about, you know, with control over all branches of government except the Supreme Court. So I'm excited about what we can accomplish. It's going to mean getting ourselves back into fighting shape a little bit um, in a way that's not sort of desperate, hang on by your fingertips feeling of the past four years, but realize, you know, we're going to need to go in and be tough with all the Biden appointees about what we need. We're going to have to go after our members of Congress who are sort of on the fence yeah. about things we care about in the Democratic side of the island, neutralize some of our worst enemies on the on the right. And so there's a lot more work to do now, but, you know, there was no possibility of success if, if Trump had gotten reelected. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah, the, the imagery of hanging on by our fingers, the, the burnout and just the sheer kind of blanket of anxiety was very real. And I'm, I'm so grateful that there's a chance to kind of move forward now. Um, you know, I think one of the great, I guess, things I, I feel like is a challenge going forward is just that the administration lost trust with anything related to healthcare and to COVID response and whatnot. And it feels like in this moment when we need such a coordinated response to do something so massive, COVID response thing of getting everyone vaccinated, how does the government gain the, tr the public's trust back again? Is that something you feel like is doable? What would that take? What would that look like? We sort of don't have a choice, right? We have to, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> and and it, it's all hands on deck. And yeah. um, so the president is already starting to set uh, some new social norms about mask wearing, for instance. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's talking about the end of the epidemic and getting people back to work, back to school, et cetera. So he's giving people sort of a vision of, a life afterwards. Yeah. I don't think you can do it alone. I think, you know, and this is why I think the corporate sector is important. Um, the entertainment sector, the sport, you know, we need to, this is a massive sort of social marketing campaign for lack of mm. a better word in which yeah. we have to reshape people's feelings about public health and, and the pandemic in a way that was you know, deeply poisoned by the previous administration. And so it's going to take, not just a governmental response, but social movements working in communities hardest hit by the epidemic to say, need to get vaccinated. 
right? people who have social influence beyond politics yeah. to, to be able to, to weigh in and, and use their talents to convince Americans that we need to, to do this all together. I mean, some of that happened last night during the sort of inaugural festivities because, you know, you saw that they brought brought in people from all different walks of life. and yeah. But that needs to continue um, because people, you know, trust lots of different kinds of people in their lives. Sometimes people have strong feelings about people in entertainment or sports um, or in the corporate world, for instance. And it's been interesting to see, you know, the corporate leaders' responses to the sort of insurrection two weeks ago um, yeah. and the sort of broad scale condemnation of it. I have no illusions about corporate America, but, you know, to get through this pandemic, we're going to need their help as well. I absolutely agree. All hands on deck. And I, you know, Wall Street and the corporate world, I'm always skeptical about, but I, I feel like without them, there's no way to move forward. And so trying to remain as open-minded as possible and hoping that, yeah, that in the coming years that their shareholder-only strategy um, will, their, their, their framework of, of working will, will kind of change as well. Do you, have you seen, and I know that states are doing their own things, have you seen any that are doing a good job or that have interesting models of an equitable rollout of the vaccine? Well, it's, first of all, it's hard to tell. Yeah. I asked on Twitter a few days ago, does anybody have any data on sort of equitable distribution of the vaccines? And, you know, it's pretty clear that it's not going well equity wise, mm -hmm. right? in terms of racial and ethnic disparities in vaccine, vaccine um, distribution, economic, you know, some of the maps I've seen from the sort of Chicago area, from DC and other places show that, you know, basically where the disease is, the vaccines aren't coming. Where, yeah. you know, that it's tracking, if you're frankly rich and white, you're gonna be more likely to be vaccinated in the United States than if you're poor and African-American. So, yeah. and that's what's starting to play out, even though like there's been lots of discussions about needing to, to integrate social and economic concerns into vaccine distribution. We're working with the Center for Spatial Research at Columbia on this map of the United States saying, where would the vaccines go if you just did healthcare workers and you know long-term care facilities? Where would they go if you were thinking about social vulnerability or you're thinking about race? And you can yeah. click on the map and you see that not every county has um, equal claim on vaccines if you really care about social justice and that we mm -hmm. a tilt towards certain communities rather than others. And some people are like, oh, well, everybody should get the vaccine. Yeah, everybody should get the vaccine. But as we see right now, sort of saying like, we're not going to think about equity. Um, yeah. And even if we paid lip service to it a few weeks ago, it's definitely being rolled out inequitably across the country, which means the, the pandemic is going to linger in communities longer than others. Yeah, which is awful. Um, and I saw in your New York Times interview that you, this concept of um, allocating based on social vulnerability, can you tell us a little bit more about that and, you know, how it can be done practically? So the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine in their vaccine allocation report said, you know, healthcare workers, the elderly, blah, 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 blah. Um, but they also said use something called the social vulnerability index that the CDC has. It's like 15 different components, and I don't remember all of them, but basically it's been a way for the CDC to sort of target census tracts and counties that are vulnerable for economic social reasons for a variety of sort of crises from 
natural disasters to pandemics. The gross, sort of the most crude way of thinking about using the SVI is to say, if you have two places um, that have the same number of healthcare workers and that census tract or that county um, is higher social vulnerability, you, you allocate slightly more doses to a more vulnerable county. But could you also think of it as just sort of making sure that you have better communication strategy for vulnerable counties, that you're making sure that in the context of a vaccination program that is not making explicit sort of dose allocations based on vulnerability, that we don't see sort of inequalities emerging like we're doing now. Um, yeah. Because that was the whole reason to think of social vulnerability in the first place. Um, yeah. So, you know, it was meant to keep sort of an eye on sort of inequalities in distribution rather than being sort of a quota system based on social vulnerability, but it's not working out right now. And yeah. basically the social vulnerable in our country are, are not getting access right. to the vaccine. And that's not surprising, but it uh, doesn't make me any less angry. <laughs> um, and when you talk about social vulnerability and um, something that I've been thinking about is like places where people are incarcerated, right? Um, so detention centers, jails, prisons, whatever it is, um, have been hotspots for COVID for obvious reasons um, of social distance, right? Like the difficulty to, of wearing masks and whatnot, um, which is not that different from like nursing homes, which have been prioritized. And so I, it's my understanding that several states have kind of prioritized people who are incarcerated, but it seems like despite, it feels to me like an obvious place where it should have been, um, you know, maybe it's not so obvious for, for other kind of like you know, public opinion reasons. And I was wondering, I guess, what your thoughts were about that and what are some kind of compelling, I guess, frameworks for thinking about that? Well, most of my time in 2020, like it's been running depositions and affidavits um, for cases to get people out of prisons and jails, right? But there's no safe place to be in a jail or prison in a pandemic. They're crowded, they're unsanitary. People already come in with sort of underlying health conditions, et cetera. And so, you know, the largest clusters during this pandemic have been in in prisons and jails in the United States. It's clear that um, regardless of vaccination, that we should be decarcerating um, and lowering the number of people in prisons and jails. And this is coming from people also working in criminal justice. This woman, Leanne Birch, who is the former head of the North Dakota Department of Corrections, wrote a piece in the appeal back in March or April about decarceration. And, you know, North Dakota is not a blue state, it's a red state. And she's a former, you know, state warden and saying, we can keep people safe. It's been very hard to get governors to agree to this, including our own governor here in Connecticut, Ned Lamont. And so we're going to continue to see sort of disproportionate impact of COVID-19 in detention centers, as well as prisons and jails, particularly at the state level where the policies and the resources and infrastructure may be different from state to state. Again, it's a no-brainer to me that vaccination should happen in congregate facilities, nursing homes, prisons, homeless shelters, etc. And that it's only the social stigma of being incarcerated that will keep us from allocating doses to these places. Yeah. It's really devastating to think about. Um, and I hope that this will, I don't know, I don't know if you feel hopeful or if you feel like nothing's going to change, but criminal justice system and decarceration and decriminalization of poverty and 
all of that. I hope that there will be a push towards all of that again, um, seeing just how the you know pandemic is ravaging that community. So I just had two last questions for you. You know, you mentioned that you did AIDS activism sort of all around the world. And I was wondering if you saw any parallels between the way life-saving therapeutics were distributed, you know, all over the world. And as you mentioned, this very kind of inequitable distribution of life-saving you know, vaccines here in the U.S. and globally. It's pretty clear that the medical apartheid that we talked about in the late 90s about antiretroviral drugs around the world is happening with vaccines. I'm in close contact with my colleagues in South Africa. You know, hmm. you know we're talking about, are you and I going to get a vaccine by this summer? And, you know, after 50, 60% of the United States is vaccinated, most yeah. countries in the global south are not going to see vaccines until next year, which means the pandemic is just going to be sort of burning through Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, the former Soviet Union for months and months to come. And so we didn't have a plan for distribution of vaccines in the United States, which was bad enough, but yeah. nobody really took seriously the, what was going to happen for the rest of the world. You know, we have COVAX and we have the Act Acceler and other sort of things that are meant to address global access needs, but the scale, sheer scale of, of vaccinating the billions of people on this planet um, yeah. needs something far beyond sort of like yesterday's multilateral solutions. It needs something that's, that needs a financial commitment that blows the global fund for HCB and malaria and these other sort of multilateral initiatives out of the water. So I feel like we're going to have a continuing crisis around the world in access to vaccines, which means a continuing crisis with the pandemic around the world for years to come. It sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know how to... People are fighting Oxfam, MSF, other groups who are fighting the fight yeah. around AIDS drugs are, are on the case for this. And yeah. I think the Biden administration understands that this is a, a national problem as well as an international one. If you don't stamp out COVID across the world, it's it just going to come back here to haunt us. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point of how COVID hopefully made everyone realize just how we are each other's neighbors responsible for one another. And so my last question for you is, how can we ensure that our loved ones and our communities are safely vaccinated, as well as how do we keep the pressure on or how do we ensure that that equity is a part of the way our local governments and our you know, state and federal governments, you know, that, that equity is a part of their calculus and the way that they respond. So, you know, it's interesting. In 2017, after the Muslim ban was enacted, mm-hmm. thousands of people gathered in front of Sterling Library here at Yale. And I remember the dean of the School of Management marching over his students and his mm-hmm. faculty from Evans Hall. And it was a sight to see, right? Oh, wow. Because like all of a sudden, like hundreds of people started coming from, from over on Whitney Ave. And, you know, ordinary people mobilized the women's yeah. march. Yes. The gun, anti-gun, the, the, the level of social mobilization in the United States against Trump was one, of, including the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, the yeah. social mobilization we haven't seen since the 60s. My greatest fear right now is that people are going to demobilize, is that mm. Trump is in Mar-a-Lago and everything is good in the world. Mm. Um, the point is, is that getting us out of the pandemic and then making sure that we don't have another catastrophe like this again 
I mean, yeah. you have to sort of keep up the mobilization and tell those people who sort of think they can go back to their normal lives is that nothing is going to be normal again. And if yeah. you think it is, the normal you 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 crave right now is what gave us the pandemic in the first place. And so you need to stay mobilized. And it doesn't mean sort of being on this high level of alert and emotional sort of stress for like, you know, forever, but it means that this is a struggle. And yeah. to end the pandemic, to make sure things are in place that, that prevent an, another one from happening like this means yeah. that, you know, there's a type of civic engagement that um, is not optional right now. Yeah, particularly in the United States, where you know there is a still um, sizable minority of the population that still thinks it was a hoax, that thinks it's not a big big enough deal, and you know that think white people are more discriminated against than African American. I mean, there's there's a whole sort of cult of Trump that he's built up, um, yeah. and the party Republican Party's built up that are going to push in the opposite direction starting today, um, and so yeah. we need to still be mobilized and still be on high alert because. There's too much work to do. Yeah. Uh, amen to that. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Greg. This was fabulous. Um, thank you for, yeah, just all of your amazing insights and for encouraging us and for inspiring us to stay mobilized and I'm excited for what's to come. So thank you so much. Anytime.